How about we open our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. We've been in a series now in this amazing book, and thanks, Josh, and we will be uh, wrapping this up fairly shortly within the next few weeks, and then we're going to be starting a brand new series going through the Gospel of John. Really, really excited about this, and just be uh, praying for how God wants to begin to speak to you. Uh, would you guys stand one more time, and we're going to read the text together? 1 Peter chapter 5, since Jordan told us a little bit about uh, how his ministry flourished underneath his uh, doing. We're going to talk a little bit about humility today. So First Peter chapter 5. Just kidding. I'm glad that it flourished. That's awesome. So anyways, here we go. First Peter chapter 5. Uh, it says this. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So that in proper time, he will exalt you, casting all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray for us right now before we all seat. God, just thank you for who you are, what you are doing, how you want to shape us and make us to become people that not just live, not just survive on the Central Coast, but totally flourish and thrive underneath the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. In accordance to your plan and your assignments and your will and your purposes. So we just commit this time in your hands right now and let your word and your spirit work together to make us people that are more like you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? Um, so again, we've been in this uh, series. If you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and uh, raise your hand. I'll get one. have been in this series looking at really this big idea of suffering and uh, glory and this dual theme kind of pops up over and over and over again. And uh, again, the context is Peter's writing to a community of people that are living in ancient Rome. It was during the reign of a guy by the name of Caesar Nero, if you're familiar with him. Uh, he was not a really good guy. He was not very favorable towards Christians, and it created uh, not only a political atmosphere that was very hostile towards Christianity and uh, followers of Jesus, but also kind of a general public uh, persona or public opinion, uh, and sometimes public opinion can actually be worse than political uh, uh, edicts and whatnot, but in this, this double type of uh, ferocity was kind of aimed against Christians, and their big desire was to uh, flourish and to do well in the culture without abandoning the culture, nor without assimilating, becoming like the culture. And that's the razor edge that each one of us, even today, is one of the reasons why we said we've been going through this, is I think there's so much relevance for you and I today, because we are really in the exact same circumstance right now, 21st century America. Uh, we have political challenges that are uh, not necessarily favorable towards Christians. Uh, uh, the, the general opinion is not necessarily generally favorable towards Christians or Christian ideas or ideologies. And again, we should not look at that and just be shocked and be dismayed and kind of go into some sort of deep despair or depression. Uh, it's always been this way. And the beauty about this is that if it's always been that way, then it also means that there is a means for help and assistance and strength for us. So we don't have to simply go through life either becoming just like culture, in other words, so that we can flourish, nor do we have to kind of abandon a culture and, you know, uh, go become doomsday prepper someplace out in Montana uh, in order to survive. Like, there is a happy medium that you and I can basically find ourselves living in the midst of. And this is exactly what Peter's trying to describe. And one of the things in which, in the context that we're looking at here today, is he uses this idea of humility, which we'll get into in just a moment. 
is uh, he invites them, challenges them, and you can even say commands them to live in a way that walks in humility. And this is kind of shocking. Again, especially to a, a marginalized minority group that does not have political power, that does not have a political opinion power, uh, and that has some ideas and ideological concepts that are radically distinct from the culture at large. Uh, his whole thing is not... Again, I, I've, I've always been amazed at what Peter and what New Testament writers do not say. He's not saying take up arms and resist with as much violence as you can those that are in opposition to you. He, he says humble yourselves. Walk in humility. And this is so astounding. It should shock you. If it doesn't shock us, it's because we're not really uh, really super aware, I think. And, and again, I put myself in the same category, so it's not an accusation. It's just the reality. Like, we might not catch the saliency, the potency of this idea of humility. Now, let's jump in and begin to take a look at this. And I'll just look at three things. We'll kind of wrap this up. My message today is going to be a little bit truncated just due to time and whatnot. Not cutting anything out. Um, I could preach for two hours, but I'm just going to try to show you guys love and attention and whatnot. So anyways, here we go. Let's take a look at number one, the idea of the call of humility. This is what Peter is inviting us into. And I like my little subtext for this. My, my, the call for humility in a culture that rewards narcissism, entitlement, pride, and rebellion. Do you, do you agree with that? If this is simply tolerated, it rewards it. You become a viral TikTok sensation the more narcissistic you are. Do you agree with that? That's our world. The more pride you show, the more you rise in the ranks. The higher up the food chain you climb. And this is the world that we live in. So the idea of humility, whatever this is, we'll look at this in just a moment. Whatever humility is, it stands in stark contrast to all of these. Uh, to put it another way, like humility runs radically counter to gratitude, self-awareness, God-awareness, totally counter to that. Uh, in other words, if, if I should say, it, that is what it is. Uh, what runs counter to humility is narcissism, pride, ego. This idea of oftentimes uh, shoving ourselves and our agendas ahead of other people. Entitlement, that's what entitlement is. Entitlement basically goes around and says, I, I worked hard for this. I merited this. I did, I, I played the game. I walked the walk. I went to school, I did all of the steps and the actions and activities that was required of me, and I deserve to be acknowledged or recognized. That's, that's what entitlement is. Sometimes the more we get, the more in terms of like even uh, clout or authority or money, the more entitled we feel because we look at our lives and like, look at what I've done. And on top of that, entitled people oftentimes look at other people that aren't um, as privileged or as blessed or as uh, wealthy or as uh, experiencing prosperity with a sense of disdain. It's a sense of uh, pridefulness that kind of swells one's ego and heart and adds to the narcissism and narcissistic ways. All of the above. I can talk about that all we want. But again, what Peter's inviting them to do is to live in a way that's consistent with humility. Now, thankfully, he actually has a template in mind, which we will end our time on to really meditate and think about. Um, so in other words, he's not just kind of making this stuff up. He's not riffing off of whatever ideas are coming to his mind. He, he is literally logically and maybe even emotionally thinking about, in his mind, an idea of what humility looks like. And he's saying, this is how God has acted towards me, and therefore God's inviting me to act in a way towards other human beings that's consistent with his actions. 
uh, which is the word humility. So with that being said, I just want to go through each one of these because I think it'll be helpful for us by way of just all kind of rapid fire bullet bees. Uh, number one, in the context, he describes leaders are to act with a sense of humility. Now, again, we just looked at this a couple weeks ago. He points out in first few verses of chapter five, he describes servants or leaders or uh, shepherds of the church. That's, that's kind of like my job, my role. Other people that kind of take upon their role of like, hey, I'm, I'm leading a movement of people that are called Christians, church leaders, whatever. I mean, you can look at all these. And, and I think what he's saying is that leaders are to act with humility um, as opposed to a sense of like entitlement, like I deserve this or trying to uh, uh, fleece the flock or to take from them things that is not ill-deserved or to even do so in a way when if they serve in a way that's kind of like grumbling or complaining. His whole point is that like no leaders are to act kind of in a contract contract with others with, with a sense of humility. Nobody wants to be a part of a church community where the leader is, is, is prideful or arrogant or constantly just pointing out everybody else's flaws or faults or whatnot. Um, so, but then he goes on to say, young church members are to act with humility. This is where he part, starts out with verse 5. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Now, the word uh, younger there is the Greek word neo, or N-E-O-S, which um, probably is a reference to a young Specifically, he gets very specific, a young male. Can young women be arrogant? Yes. But he's really targeting young men. Why? Again, he's writing to a community of people that are trying to survive and thrive because I think Peter knows something about the young, arrogant side of young men. You know, he goes, I listened to a podcast and I'm an expert on this. I read a book on XYZ and I'm an expert on this. And young dudes, especially young dudes, I was once a young dude. In fact, I planted the church as a young dude. I was 23 years old. I, funny thing is, in, in my evolution, if you want to use that word, I, I moved from a state of knowing everything there is about the church, Jesus, church planning, the Bible, to where now I'm just like, I know Jesus loves me. And there's a heck of a lot that I'm just still trying to figure out and make sense of and process and rethink and reconstruct and, 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 and put it all in the larger context of God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, there's definitely things, yes, I hold uh, deeply to. I'm not going to bend on. I will not shift or change on. And there's other things that are just the kind of a secondary matters. I'm just like, oh my gosh. I remember there's a day that I was so like forcefully committed to this particular idea that now I'm just like such a secondary or third type of an issue that I almost feel embarrassed now. But the point of the matter is because he acknowledges that young members oftentimes can have this prideful or rebelliousness of like, I'm not going to do what that older pastor says. He wears a coat and he looks weird. I will not do what he has to say. And what, I think what Peter's saying is that like, I don't live like that. that. That's not consistent with who Jesus is, nor is it consistent with who you are, with who God's making you to be. You're, you're operating according to a different template. And again, this is not just young men. He, I, 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 I recognize that young men oftentimes can have a tendency towards this, but this can affect everybody. I mean, you can come to a church and be like, he needs to say X, Y, and Z. And if he doesn't, I'm going to be critical and judgmental. I think it's part of the idea that Peter's saying that, look, that's not humility. That's arrogance. That's a way of framing your story, the story in your life, and the story in which God is using you to be a part of the lives of other people, where it's all around you. It's around what you have accumulated in terms of knowledge and wisdom and understanding, and now you are criticizing everyone or everything else that does not spin in your little uh, system. And you say, don't, don't live like that. That's not 
in line with the idea of humility. Uh, another bullet point is to kind of point out is where we get into some idea or definition. Uh, humility is actually derived from a particular uh, he, uh, Greek word, uh, which is a noun for the word an apron that's worn by a slave. There's only one other time in which this word similarly appears in the New Testament. We'll actually get to that in a moment. But again, the, the noun form of this word is literally an actual apron that a servant or a house servant or a house slave would actually put on and wear. So again, think about that. So whatever the word or the idea or however you think of the word um, humility is, it has a deep consistency with an apron that a servant, household servant, would wear. Um, the word uh, in Latin is the word uh, himilis. Uh, we literally means uh, on the ground. Um, it had come to be known as lowly. Uh, you know, we get the word hummus from, which is not only soil, but it's also a delicious you know, spread that you put on pita bread that's warm and made by a Petra, and it's really, really good. Um, it has a olive oil and sometimes garlic. You get the idea. But the point of the matter is I'm already making myself hungry. Don't forget we have tacos afterwards. But the point that I would make is this. Back on track, Pastor Brian. But the idea is this. Hummus uh, literally means of the earth, from the earth, on the ground, from the ground. That's what the word hummus is, and that's where we get the word humility from. So whatever the word humility is it means something associated with lowliness, taking a place that's below other people. It's a pretty powerful image. And we're also told um, later on in the passage here, take a look again at the end of verse 5. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is probably an echo of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 24. And uh, he tells us something about how God responds to pride. It's one of the seven deadly sins that says the Proverbs writer and other New Testament writers and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all throughout the corpus of Scripture that kind of keeps pointing back to, that pride is the one sin that will really get you in absolute destruction. Again, rejection of Jesus, but why do we reject Jesus? Because we're prideful. Why did Adam and Eve sin? Is Because there was pride that entered their heart. They began to think that I know actually probably more than God. Um, the serpent lied to them, deceived them, and they kind of moved into this place of just uh, even questioning God. Like, that's what pridefulness does. That's what this idea of pridefulness does within our hearts. It causes us to question all authority. Now, does that mean we should never question authority? No, because I think there are moments where we have to do that, but it really boils down to a particular process and way in which we do that. So what we can uh, I, uh, get surmised with regard to this is that there is a deep call to humility, especially in the context of a world that rewards narcissism, entitlement, pride, and rebellion. Now let's move on to the next one, the idea of the offense of humility, because I think, again, this concept of humility is, is deeply offensive. It, it runs counter to really everything that we sense, even within the world in which we live in. Now within the Greco-Roman uh, world order, especially a world order that had a militaristic superpower like the Romans did, uh, the idea of being humble or walking around with a sense of humility was, was kind of shunned. It was viewed as a source of weakness. Um, humility was kind of viewed as uh, an attitude of subordinates. So in other words, if you are subordinate, if you are a subjected human being, meaning you are the under the boot of another human being that was higher or greater or oppressing you, then, then you would be the lowly, humble human being that's subjecting yourself to other people. So again, it was not a characteristic trait that was widely viewed with a deep sense of virtue. 
Aristotle critiqued humility in this particular way. And again, he influenced many, many Greek and Roman thinkers. Uh, he described it something along those ideas. And there's just sort of a very, very loose idea of a quote that he had. But um, that he viewed uh, the natural human desire uh, for greatness, what he described as magnanimity. Um, this could oftentimes be suppressed. Uh, yielding to uh, this solemnity is uh, the idea of our lack of courage or determination. So humility could be viewed as a kind of a cop-out. Like human beings, we should ascribe to greatness and power and amazingness and, you know, viral influencer status. And if you're not, you might think it's because you're humble. And that might take on cultural currency in terms of an idea or definition to what the word is. But what, what the big concept here is it would be viewed as a, as a despised trait. So again, rapid fire around thinking about humility. I'll go through these quick things. Uh, number one, uh, humility could be viewed as a trait of the weak, of the weak people. They're subjugated, they're suppressed, um, and therefore not something to really be aspiring towards. So when someone like Jesus shows up and says, walk in humility, or I'm going to show you what humility is by way of my life, that could be deeply offensive, especially in a culture. Uh, I'll give you another one. Um, this is completely me just going um, off script here. But the idea that comes to my mind is, is when the, the story of the prodigal son, uh, when the father runs out to him, this is, this is troubling uh, to those that would have been familiar with the story. Because the father, the father would have been the patriarch of the family. He was like the top of the food chain. He was the guy that had power, the authority, the respectability. And to run, um, oftentimes back in those days, you know, dudes would wear dresses and there's no big deal. But the idea is that they would take the dress and they would kind of like uh, put it up, high it up, make it high so that they can then run. And, and while they do that, you can kind of see their, their hairy legs. And nobody in any culture in any way wants to see another dude's hairy legs. Um, but the point of the matter is, in that ancient culture, especially when it came around respectability, you definitely don't want to see the legs of a highly respectable person like a father or a patriarch of the family. And so when he hikes up his you know, little dress and runs to his son, he's basically breaking every form of taboo around respectability. And it was shocking. It would have been shocking when Jesus told that story. Those listening to this would have been like, wait, what? The father did what? That's, that's completely disrespectful how he operated. No father of respectable manner should operate or act in a particular manner like that. But Jesus' whole point is, is that's what the father does. When he fixes his affection, his attention upon the one whom he loves, his wayward son, he, he doesn't care. He throws respectability out the window. Why? Because he's deeply committed. And this is what we see here in this idea of humility. Sometimes there are things that are viewed within the broader culture as being traits of weakness or uh, offense, but these are things that God would look at and say, no, I, I like them. So not only is humility can be viewed as a trait of the weak, uh, humility could also be a tool of the oppressors. And this is another big argument that's been forged against the idea of humility. In other words, um, have leaders, for example, use this whole narrative of, hey, just be humble to subjugate other people? Absolutely. I mean, for sure that's been the case. But does that mean that we discard the idea of humility? No, it means that we have to get to a proper understanding of it and what was the intention of it. And at the same time, uh, unveil the evil, the duplicity, or the sinful uh, misuse of some of these things. And so, yes, this idea of, um, 
enforcing humility upon subjugated people groups is an evil that needs to be unveiled and identified that this concept of upholding a hegemonic power structure, in other words, oppressing others by way of using uh, the language of just be humble, that's, that's a wickedness. But is that what Jesus and what Peter are suggesting here? No, not at all. Do we dismiss it? Do we take the posture of many Americans today, just get offended at everything? Because it, we, don't make, we don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to us. Or should we actually, as humble servants and disciples of Jesus, reorient our understanding, our thinking around whatever it is that Peter, New Testament authoritative writers are trying to deposit in our hearts, I would suggest that. And so lastly, uh, we see this idea of humility being a posture that God honors, that God honors humility. Think about it this way. Again, just listen to this passage again. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Imagine what it's like in a culture where you've, you've been opposed, made by a boss, someone that you valued, someone whose opinion that you wanted to have some high level of with. Uh, if you've ever been in a place where maybe you've been canceled, you've been doxxed online, or you've, uh, you, your name has been something that is, you know, you said something that you shouldn't have said, or you, you violated the liturgies of the modern culture, and uh, you've violated certain words, or didn't use a proper pronoun to describe yourself, or you misgendered somebody else, and somehow you violated these, these, these ethical codes of our culture, and now you are facing high levels of criticism, critique, cancellation. But the point of the matter is, is that we can look at those things and be like, oh my gosh, the last thing I want to do is to upset the powers that be and stand in opposition to them. But what Peter's saying here, if it carries any level of currency or potency, listen to what he says again. God gives grace to the humble, but he stands in opposition to the proud. What's the one thing that will keep you from experiencing and receiving and being transformed by the kindness and the goodness and the grace of God? It's pride. And it's funny to me, is like I, it, it's not about knowledge. Sometimes people tend to think that Christianity is about like being on this journey and learning information and uh, developing a theological grid for the world. And um, the more information you gather, the greater along on the pathway that you're going to grow as a follower of Jesus. I've actually kind of learned that's not necessarily the case. In fact, what I've actually found is that sometimes knowledge, you know, puffs up. Love builds up, as Scripture says. But I've also seen guys, especially guys, especially guys, it can affect uh, women as well. But I've definitely seen men that have been in this church for a long time. And they learn, they sit in certain spots every single week. They learn, they, they, they glean, they gather information. They might even challenge some of it. So they're constantly trying to sharpen their theological chops. And yet, there are moments, like one guy in particular I can remember, for years was involved in coming to this church and was just would sit there and literally just kind of like this, always, always sit in this particular posture. And again, I, you know, I'm not a psychologist, or, but I, I also have learned over the years to identify certain body postures. Like, I know that posture. I know that. Here's another one. It's like when people sit behind a pole and they, they hide from me. Or they sit, like, I'm like, I, I know that posture. Like, I get it. Like, you're not wanting to hear what's being spoken. or something. I get it. I get it. My, my hope is, like, I don't care if you don't like what I have to say. That's fine. Um, I don't want you to miss the grace of God. I don't want you to miss the kindness, the goodness of God. I, this one particular guy 
and he's not here, no one of you would know him, but I, I remember watching his trans, transition, his transformation at one point, where he went from, like, God began to break those walls. And what was happening was the pride was being deconstructed in his heart. He began to see himself for, for who, who he truly is, and see the grace and the kindness and the goodness of God for what it truly was, and the people of God for, for what they are. Flawed, messed up, broken, having proclivities that are annoying, all of the above, but all of those walls began to break because he saw God for who God was, or at least how God revealed to him in that moment, and it began to change him. So I would argue it's not so much about how much you know about God. It's how much have you submitted your heart to the lordship of Jesus, your own human frailty, your own human brokenness, and acknowledge the fact that he alone is good. And I have deep, deep needs for him. That melts pride and puts me in a state of a posture of humility where now I can receive. Now I can actually step into what God has. Now I can actually have a dialogue or a conversation with somebody and not feel like I'm always kind of taking this, this posture of like, I got to protect myself because if I let down my guard in front of them, they'll might, they might know me for who I truly am or I might actually have to become real. And all of that, guys, is a facade. It's a facade that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where people put on fig leaves to cover their own nakedness and shame. Those very things that they feel deeply embarrassed of or those limitations they're aware of. So... As we close, I want for us to think about the template that Peter had in mind. I'm confident this is exactly what Peter had in mind because this is, this is Peter's experience. You know, in our culture today, um, that authority, there's been so much authority. In fact, I would almost even say that this is the authoritative, um, I don't know, uh, uh, lever that we look at in our cult- culture today that says, if, if you have a personal opinion, meaning this is your opinion, it's not an opinion that, that came from Jeff Bezos or came from some TED Talk person, this is your opinion, and secondly, your personal experience. Those two criteria cancel out everything. That's our culture. That's our culture. That's not biblical, by the way, but that's our culture. So from that angle, I want to I use what Peter has to say. He not only has an opinion that he's sharing right here, but he also has a personal experience. It may be noteworthy and powerful, but it cannot be, in everyone's case, ultimately all authoritative. Because if that's all we have is a personal opinion and a personal experience, is it possible there's occasions where I may misinterpret my experience? I see that all the time. There's a thing called marriage. I've had over 30 years of it. I can't tell you how many times, like, something happens in my marriage. And, like, I assume something about my wife, and she assumes about something about me, which... Most of the time, it's me towards her. And then I, I have to be corrected. Like, oh, here's what I thought. Here's how I interpreted this particular movie. And Sherry's like, no, that's not, what, that's not at all what happened. Like, A, that's not what I meant. B, that's, that's not even what happened. Like, I don't know what you're seeing. Like, you saw something entirely different than what I saw. So my experiences are not the best GPS to judge where I'm at in the world, in this world, or where I'm going or where I should go. But... Peter has some important things to say that are his experiences. And I would add one little final caveat to this. The Holy Spirit emblazoned what Peter had to say, that this becomes authoritative to us. So listen to it. Uh, John chapter 3, verse, uh, John chapter 13. I'll just read this, and you can follow along and listen. I want to finish with, with one final thought. He says this. This is the story of Jesus, by the way, uh, at the Last Supper, which would be identified as kind of like what we just did today, Lord's Supper. Listen to what he says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had 
come from God and is going back to God, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garment. Then taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. There's that word, apron. Jesus puts on an apron. Now, if you're in this context, you're like, what the heck is Jesus doing? Like, he's dressing up as a slave. He's the king of kings. He's the conquering warrior. He's the anointed one of God. He is of the same status and stuff as King David, the great. If you know anything about David, David would have been like the highest level of honor and respectability in every ancient Jew, and even modern Jews. And the point that I would make is that as Jesus puts on this robe, he then begins to move into something. Verse 5, he says, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Then he said to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter then said, You shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered and said, If I don't wash your feet, then you have no share with me. I'll just continue reading. Then Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And then Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except with his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not only one, not all, every one of you. And the point that I think Jesus is making to Peter is that what I'm doing for you, to you, is a template that I as God, Yahweh God, have stepped into this world to take upon myself. The only way that God is saying that the powers of evil are going to be reckoned with and dealt with and the chains of, of, of entitlement and pride and arrogance are going to be broken is by God doing something astoundingly different. What if, I mean, God could have showed up. Fire with fire. Power with power. You got power, Caesar. I'm going to show you power. He shows up with humility. Completely undoes everything we've ever thought about who God is and how God would act. But in doing so, melts the hearts. And I mean melts the hearts of those who have been acted upon by God in this context. To be able to see God as a player in his own script saying, I'm not come with a bolt of lightning in my hand to strike and destroy and crush. I have come to serve and humble myself and to carry and to bear their sin, shame, and guilt. And in doing so, break these cycles and make you a brand new human being that now then begins to live in a way that models what I've come to do for you. And I want to finish with a question. Like, why does any of this matter? Why does it matter how we even think about the posture of a Christian being one that's framed around this concept, this hated concept that we had of, of humility, this culturally irrelevant, culturally despised trait we know as humility? Why? Why does this matter? And again, you can even find on YouTube that there's all sorts of like, you know, modern ways of identifying um, business practices around humility. There's like multiple TED Talks you can find on, you know, the power of humility in business and yada, yada, yada. And so, so there's some degree that people are acknowledging. But I still kind of even question, is it real humility or is it just kind of a facade? So that rather than cruising around like with this posture of like, I'm the big dude in charge, everybody just bow to me because I'm the god of by this company. Or is it more of like, no, that doesn't work anymore. That worked maybe in 1940, 1950, 1960. It doesn't work in like 2020 where everyone's suspicious of power structures. You got you to gotta be humble. But in reality, are you really humble? 
Or is it just a facade, acting humility, acting with humility, but in reality, you're just, you're just, you're just, your pride has gone under, undercover. That's all, that's all. No, what Jesus is calling for is a radical reformation of the heart. And this is what Peter's inviting us into, to think about. Why does this matter? Well, I want to finish with a little picture of um, what's known as the Cologne Cathedral. And uh, I was listening to a message this past week, and the guy who was giving the talk described that the Cologne Cathedral took about 600 years to create, and he made this uh, observation, asked this question. He says, I'm convinced that the original architects and the original builders and the people that kind of laid the very foundation work of this thing, they knew in their lifetime they would never stand in this great cathedral, which, by the way, if, you've know, if you don't know anything about the Cologne Cathedral, look it up. It's mind-blowing. It's literally the, probably the greatest architectural feat on planet Earth. That's pretty big. It's mind-blowing. These original builders, they knew they weren't going to be standing in here and worshiping God. They knew that. But what they did know is maybe their great-great-great-grandkids would. They're building for a future generation. So the question I want for us to ponder and think about is what type of Christian values or Christian concepts are we passing on? Not only are we embodying currently right now in today's world, but passing on. Is it a religious belief of power and strength and might and win at all costs? Take what belongs to us, entitlement, narcissism. At some point, this is going to run its course and it will break. And when it breaks, the entire system will just break around it. Jesus will continue to keep building his church because he promised he would do so. But I would suggest that what God's inviting us into is a framework that sees him as great and sees us in deep need and that we align our lives as closely as we can to this idea of humility, not because we're trying to earn a great name amidst the world, but because we deeply, deeply, deeply are committed to wanting to model and represent the life of Jesus in this world. And I think that's what we're being invited into. And I want to finish right now just by praying over us. So I want to invite us all to stand and to think about maybe areas in our lives that need to be brought back under the lordship of Jesus. What are those areas? And again, I can talk a lot about humility and pride and C.S. Lewis had this great little statement in his book on pride. He says, like, I can identify pride so well in other people because I, that's the thing I deal with most. And so if you're really, really good at identifying pride, you're the type of person like, that person's prideful. That person, and you got like this great pride radar. It's probably because you're very prideful. So, so don't, don't be too boastful in that. Um, otherwise, you'll just add pride to pride. But the point of the matter is, is the way that we undo this is we catch a glimpse of the beauty, the goodness, the greatness of, of King Jesus and his heart for us. And in spite of how rebellious and arrogant and narcissistic and self-focused we have been as human beings, this God came into this world for you because he's committed to you. He loves you. He's committed to reshaping and remaking you, rescuing you, saving you, and empowering you with his power of the Spirit so that you be an agent in this world that stands for righteousness and justice and goodness. Be a voice for people that don't have a voice, no matter where they're at in this life. 
this is the gospel. This is why it's so good and so beautiful. Yes, it has its detractors. Yes, there are distortions. Yes, there are people that horribly represent it. But that's the kernel that we have to keep returning to and saying, this is what I want my life by way of a template to be formed and framed around. That's what I want to invite you into. So I want to pray over us right now, and I want to just invite you to ask God for the grace wherever it's needed throughout your life. So Jesus, we turn our hearts to you right now. We say thank you for your great love. We invite you, Spirit of God, to come breathe afresh and remake and renew us in all those areas that we've grown tired or dry or frustrated or cynical or angry or felt lost, felt forgotten, felt abandoned. God, all of those areas, you know where they're at in each one of us. Remake us new. We pray these things in Jesus' name.